Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome, welcome. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 140. I'm Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. And we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, we have got just one guest on the podcast this week, but he has had uh, quite an amazing career and life. Let's see if I can get some of the numbers right here. He is a six-time Oscar nominee and has won an Academy Award, a six-time Golden Globe nominee with two wins to his credit, a nine-time Grammy nominee with three Grammy Awards, and a two-time Emmy nominee as well. He's certainly one of the most prolific and talented songwriters in the history of pop music. Uh, Has also been an actor, an author, and an advocate for those in recovery as well. We had a fascinating conversation with the great Paul Williams. First of all, congratulations. Uh, Just a few months ago, you celebrated a big birthday. Uh, You're peaking at the right time, I would say. You know what? I feel like a tired 34, but yeah, I hit 80. I can't believe it. Uh, and I'm remembering the last 30 years before that. It's a little fuzzy sometimes, but, but yeah, I also, you know, I have two birthdays. I also have my sober birthday, which is 30 years and, uh, and they've been the best years of my life. So, uh, I'm nothing, I'm nothing but grateful, nothing but grateful. Well, and, and you've written about that, uh, in your book with Tracy Jackson, gratitude and trust recovery is not just for addicts. As you look at the, the scope of your life, how important has that work been for you and, and oh, to the rest of the world? You know what? For for me, it's the greatest gift I've ever been given. And, and you know, it, 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 the, the effect was interesting because I actually wrote a musical about two years. About two years after I got sober, I worked on The Muppet Christmas Carol. I wrote all the songs for that. And it's, and it's uh, you know, a, a, an amazing alignment of, of my life with, you know, my life and my work. Because it's, it's you know, the main character is Scrooge, who is having a spiritual awakening. And here I am beginning to write again and work again and having a spiritual awakening. I don't think there's anything that's more important to my life, you know, than, than, the, than my recovery. And I think we all have something to recover from. I know that, that Tracy and I were friends, literally met in Robert Mitchum's bedroom when well, I, I think, you know, in 1980, maybe 1981 or something. And I was just rude and, you know, and arrogant and, and loaded and, and uh, was just thrilled to be around Robert Mitchum because he was one of my heroes. So, and trying to keep up with him put me in rehab twice. <laughs> but I was, I was, I was just rude. I mean, I was, I threw a comment at her that I won't, you know, a, you know, I won't repeat on the air, but she walked in and said, I'm a big fan. And I said, well, I hope it, yeah. anyway. <laughs> uh, and then met her after, after I was about, I think, this next time I met her was, was uh, 19, maybe, no, it was, it was like 2000. So all of a sudden she's, she's meeting somebody that is totally different. And she'd had that experience with other people. And we started talking about the fact that she said, you know, you have, I, 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 I used the expression in front of her that, 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 you know, my choo-choo runs on the twin rails of gratitude and trust. And uh, she said, oh, my God, there's a, there's a book there. Because what she always wanted is, she said, the rest of us, we all have something to get over, whether it's shopping or affairs with somebody else's husband or whatever it is. 
the fact is that that we all have something to recover. And why don't we have something like what you've been given in the organization that I do not mention by name. But if you're an alcoholic and you're having trouble, go to the front of your phone book and you'll find an organization that can save your life. Uh, there's nothing in my, in my life that is more important than, than my own my own spiritual connection to it. just that feeling of safety and being a part of a community. And, and uh, I, you know, Rich, it's, a, it's not a long story, but 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 I was sent a, a, a little article by a, a kid the other day. And he said, I think you might enjoy this. And I looked at this story, and it was a story of Margaret Mead, uh, you know, the anthropologist. Mm. And she was asked, she was asked in a, uh, uh, in one of her classrooms, she was asked by a student, what, what was the first sign of civilization to you? And she thought about it for a minute, and she said, first sign of civilization, a healed femur. And the kid was like, "What do you, you know?" He figured it'd be either a pot or a or a tool or a weapon, maybe even, you know. But a healed femur. And uh, he said, well, "What do you mean?" She said, "Well, the, the femur is the longest bone in your body. It connects the hip to the knee. And uh, when you break your 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 femur in in the animal world, if you broke your femur, you were dead. You were lunch. Right. You know. It's but it takes the femur about fifteen about 15 weeks to heal. And when we found a a healed femur, we realized that what had happened is that either one person or a group picked this person up, put them someplace Mm -hmm. where they were safe, brought them food and water, and allowed them the time to to, to heal. And I went, oh, my God, that's the perfect (laughs) description of the organization that saved my life. That's the description of the recovering community that put my life back together for me. There's nothing that's happened to me that's more important than the chance to get my windshield clean and (laughs) begin to clean up the wreckage of my past as well. That's a great story. How how would you describe gratitude, Paul? Is uh, Is part of it acceptance? Yeah, well said. Yeah, absolutely is part of acceptance, but it's also just over the hill. There's usually a reason for anything, you know, that is a disappointment. In my, and I talk about it in the book that no is a gift. You know, no is an absolute gift. I was newly sober when I was when I was hard. No, well, newly sober. Wait a minute. Let me jump back to the time. I was probably six years, seven years sober when I when I was cast in a movie called uh, The Frighteners and shooting in New Zealand with Michael J. Fox. And I was like, oh, my God, this is it. This is going to make me a poly the big star again. Because the career that I thought I had had been in the 80s, that career disappeared, and I got sober in 1990. You know, But so here it is. It's like 1996 or something, and I get this movie that is just, wow. I mean, this is a great role. This is going to put my life back together. And all of a sudden, I, I mean, we're working out the contract, they're buying the plane tickets, and I get a call and they say, you know what, we really wanted John Aston for the role, but he was busy. And the movie he was going to make just got canceled, so bye. Oh. And my first, my absolute first thought, and this is, the, this is the gift of recovery, my first thought was, wow, I wonder what's coming that's cool. Because there's, mm. there's a reason, you know, it's like, I don't think that my life has been plotted by somebody, but my thinking, I think, affects, you know, when I think thoughts become things. And what happened is I felt an energy that was like, I let this go, as there's your word, acceptance. And then I assume 
something loving is going and wonderful is coming. So no is a gift because the phone all of a sudden the phone rings and it's this organization called the uh, NSAI, which is Nashville Songwriters Association International. And they go, would you come on down? We have a thing called Tin Pan South, and if you come on down, we'd like to give you a plaque. And I went, a plaque? Always room for a plaque. There's always a plaque <laughs> in the wall or something. So I go to Nashville, and I've and for seven years I felt no real connection to music. It's just been gone. And there's something in the water there. And the next thing I know, I'm in love with a couple of people's riding, and I'm sitting down with a stranger, and we're looking at each other, and and we write a song about getting sober called uh, "You're Gone," big hit for Diamond Rio. Mm-hmm. I'm back. Uh, it just it's it's you know there is there is a, a, a letting go of the reins in my life that for the last 30 years, and I think in some ways even before. That where I just, you know, I had a, that sense of being cared for. I get up in the morning uh, and I say, you know, I say, lead me where you need me. Big amigo. <laughs> that's, that's my morning prayer in a heartbeat. It's like, here are the rains of my day. You can see over the hill. I can't, but, you know, but, you know lead me where you need me. <laughs> and, uh, and it's the way I've lived my life. And it's just been a total gift. We're talking with Paul Williams here on downtown. When you were a young guy uh, growing up, did you did you feel like an outsider? Always. Well, wait a minute. That was too quick an answer. <laughs> no, I was an outsider, but I don't think I felt it until I got this substance out of my li- my life. I think that before I drank like an alcoholic, I acted like one. I went to nine schools by the time I was in the ninth grade. I was four foot six when I graduated high school. My dad died in a car wreck drunk when I was 13. I come from a long line of short drunks is my joke, but the fact is it was just, it was, there's something in the the Williams DNA in my family. Both my brothers were alcoholics and both got sober. Uh, My dad, uh, so, but I was always a new kid at the school, a new school. Uh, I also was given shots to make me grow when I was about, maybe eight or nine years old. And it's interesting because the doctor had no idea what he was doing and gave me a male hormone because he thought that would make me grow. All it did is it it started to, you know, knit the bones and it kicked me into puberty like at nine. And everybody, like my my dad noticed, it's like, you know, all of a sudden I had no interest in in my toy chest, but my Aunt Edna's chest was pretty exciting for me. And they went, wait a minute, get this kid off these these hormones this is uh, this is wrong and what it did is, is it slowed down my own body clock so when i was in high school i looked like i belonged in third grade i mean you can see me in movies in my early 20s you know and and i, I think i hit puberty like at, at 20 or something so the high school years were really wonderful but but you know you look at me in, in my early 20s in a movie like the loved one with jonathan winters where i'm playing a 14 year old and i'm 22 mm. Or in the chase with you know a small part in a movie with Marlon Brando, and I'm playing a fourteen or I'm playing a sixteen year old, and I'm twenty six at that time, you know. So, uh, yeah, I did. But I think that feeling of you know recognizing that you're just kind of I mean I just kept moving, I kept moving every year I moved I moved to to a clean slate, and I just didn't think about how it felt until I got sober. I was about five years sober when I went. Wow, I mean, your childhood looks looks like Dickens. This is outrageous. <laughs> why, you know, why weren't you screaming and and crying and saying this has to be fixed? 
I don't know. They, I think it's part of the part of a, a you know an, an interior life that uh, it feels much much more accepting and and loved and and to me the elegance of kindness is the most important thing in the world. You know when we when we see people acting out in in uh, in a violent fashion, no, no matter how right they may think they are, then my first thought is you know is there a way to approach this in pure sweet kindness and and with a with, you know with an open mind to you know to, to listen to the other side and collectively do something wonderful instead of and we saw I mean I'm 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 still kind of ringing with the residue of. Of uh, the invasion of of uh, D.C. yesterday, mm. so I think that you know, and I spend a lot of time on the Hill and with friends on both sides of the aisle, but it was pretty pretty hard to watch that yesterday. Yeah, it sure was. Uh, you, you talked about your father uh, dying when you were thirteen. My mom died when I was just a couple of months shy of my thirteenth birthday, and, and I've talked about wow. this with uh, with Jimmy Webb. He was a teenager when his mom died as well. And, I didn't learn this till later in life when I sort of had that awakening of my own. But uh, did losing your dad at such a young age and really losing your mom, too, because you you ended up moving away. Did that impact your relationships with people? Oh, my God. You you know, you're really good at this, Rich, (laughs) because, you know, what what I you know, what you eventually find out or what I eventually found out is that, you know, I was, you know, I spent my life writing codependent anthems. You know, the songs are <laughs> "I Won't Last a Day Without You" is not really a healthy thought. You know, it's, I write a lot of "Pick Me Up and Love Me" songs, and I did the same thing in my life. It's, I've been married to Mariana for three years. Or for, or this is my third marriage. We've been married since 2005, which is a personal best. And and what I think I've discovered about the loss of, of especially my mother, when I was shipped off to live with an aunt and uncle. Is that there is? I took that need, the mask of that need, and I put, I kept putting it on different faces. You know, like I'd meet somebody and fall in love like that. <clears throat> it was just you know immediate and and you know after the relationship may have, you know which lasted however long it lasted was over. I'd look back and and I remember thinking when when you know, a really important relationship in my life is a girl that I was living with and engaged to. When I was drinking and using it, she said, "You know what? I love you too much to watch you die, so I'm, I'm, I have to leave." And it was like, "Oh my God! All I wanted was her back." And I, and with a little bit of distance and a little bit of clarity, I looked at that relationship and I went, "You know, first of all, you were 20 years older than her, and all that need was you didn't you didn't need. She was wonderful for that message she gave me." But but it, um, the need that I was feeling was not her. It was it was my mother. And I would want I would ask you the same thing. Do you do you feel that there was that there is a, a, a translation of that need in your adult life that uh, maybe you didn't recognize right away? Yeah, absolutely. And what I found, and I needed someone else to bring it to my attention, was that in in relationships I always had a foot out the door, and, and it was. Uh, listen, let's make sure that uh, uh, I don't get hurt. I'm going to be the one to leave. They're not going to leave yeah. me like my mom did. You know, the, every every now and then, uh, you know, I do a lot of interviews and a lot of, you know, I've been, I had a blessed life and, and I love it when somebody, you know, is interested in, uh, you know, I love the attention, of course, and all. But I have to tell you that, that when... When we're in, a, in the midst of a conversation like this, after about what, how many minutes have we been talking? Uh, 
it's a real gift. It really is. It's 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 wonderful to get to some substance and all. And uh, so thanks already, Rich. Well, thank already. you. I appreciate it. So, well, let me let me go <laughs> one more step down that road. When you were writing songs and and when you were were using. Was in some way that songwriting a form of self-medication? Did that allow you to explore some dark places, but more as an observer? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the reason I became a songwriter to me is, you know, it was, I loved music. Yeah, but not nearly as much as I needed the therapy. And I think that it was the cheapest therapy in the world <laughs> to sit down by yourself and pick up a guitar and start going, you know, uh, some sleepless night, if you should find yourself alone, let me be the one you run to. Why am I writing about that? You know, let me be the one you run to when you need someone to run. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I write right through, you know, right through Daft Punk and, and, and the, you know, the songs I wrote for them. Touch, I remember touch. The pictures came with touch. Uh, a painter in my mind. We're talking about, about uh, like an awakening awareness of, need and and longing and and all these things i know that that when i my my use my addiction i mean i started out and i you know i played with a little bit of of uh a little bit of herb and and i drank and i and i you know in the 60s we all you know turn it tune in to turn on tune in whatever drop out uh, I never dropped out and everything, but I, you know, I played around with a, a, a little, you know, a few hallucinogenics and whatever. But my addiction didn't really kick into the point where it really, really just brought every, everything productive in my life to a halt until the '80s. You know, the '70s were amazing, and and you know, the the reason I became a songwriter is because I was an out of work actor. Uh, one more time, no is a gift, and all. But I think that 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 the the things that happened to us that we did not process by feeling when we were kids, when we had those losses, when we were kicked around like that. And those things that we're not dealt with, you know, that we deal with is at this point in our lives in the interim, the bridge to that for me and, and the, in a sense, the medicine, the, you know, the, the healing medicine was in picking up a guitar or sitting down next to Roger Nichols and, and having him play me the melody for Let Me Be the One and me writing the lyrics. For me to write songs about loss and being left, you know, uh, when I, when the first hit when I got sober was a country hit called You're Gone. The good news is I'm better for the times we spent together. The bad news is I'm gone. You're gone, which is Diamond Rio. Uh, and so I think that, that a bridge to my own health, you know, has been music. And it's also been been a sense of, the, you know, if I sit down to write songs for the Muppets, uh, I have, the music that exists before I write is the music of my comfort with those and respect for those amazing performers. And, and for Jim Henson and, and Frank Oz and Dave Golds, who does Gonzo, it's like, the relationship creates the music that then comes out of me, you know, for the for the projects, whether it's Muppet Christmas Carol or Emma Otter or, you know, or, 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 you know, even, you know, the for sure, you know, for sure, the Muppet movie It just it's it's there's a the music in the relationship. It's it's almost what I was talking about at the beginning of, of this conversation that when you get someplace where you're hearing each other as well as we're hearing each other. Uh, as far as the substance of what we're talking about, we're clearly hearing each other in a way that is that opens up trust and the like. 
that happens that happens to me in in collaborative experiences uh and it's it's a it's a, a remarkable thing to experience all a gift and if you most time when you talk about your gift it's like i have the gift to write no i don't have the gift to write i have the gift of being uh, staying out of the way and letting the feelings create you know the the words the music and whatever kind of muse is is, is uh is the driving force to to get these things down, but again, it's the beginning of of the music is in is is in the relationships, you know. And we're back with more of our conversation with Paul Williams here on Downtown the Podcast after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit crossinsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. I took my chances on a one-way ticket home Growing tired of strangers and the kind of life I'd known Thought the time for settling down had come at last Guess I hope to find a future in my past From his 1971 solo album, Old Fashioned Love Song Paul Williams, song called Waking Up Alone We'll talk about it a little later in our conversation Let's pick up more of our discussion with Paul As we talk about some of the music Is the story true about uh, We've Only Just Begun You and Roger Nichols had, had written it for I think it was the Crocker Bank And it, Richard Carpenter saw the ad on TV And reached out to you Is that true or just a little urban legend? Yeah. No, you just told the story, absolutely You know, Roger and I were writing for You know, we'd written one song that the Carpenters recorded, we had the B-side of Close to You. We wrote, uh, and uh, they were at A&M Records, as, as Roger and I were staff writers there. And, and what basically what happened is there was the, the commercial was going to be written by Tony Asher. Tony Asher, I don't know if you know who Tony Asher is. Yeah, he had written with Brian he, Wilson, yeah. right? Oh, exactly. God only knows what I'd be a great lyricist, you know. So Tony calls Roger. They were old buddies. And he said, "Look, I've been hired to write this this commercial for a bank. I went skiing, and I just broke my hand. Uh, and it's like, a, and it's the hand I write with, and about my pain pills, and blah blah blah. Anyway, he said, I just can't, I can't do it right now. But I recommended you and Paul. And so Roger turned to me and said, you know, and you know, I'm this, you know, I'm writing this middle of the road music with Roger and all." But inside, I'm like, I'm rock and roll. Don't mess with me. I'm black leather and white light. And Roger says, we, you know, we, this, this bank commercial. I said, I don't want to. I don't want to write a bank commercial. You know, come on, come on, Roger. He said, Well, there's a there's a creative fee. And I went, Let's write this blank bank commercial. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. Whiplash. You know, so much for years. You know, and, and uh, I think we wrote it in probably an hour. I mean, I, I, we were we were in the studio. Uh, mixing a, a, a demo to another song, and uh, Roger, you know, played me a, a, the melody, and uh, I, I think they, in some ways, they came at the same time. But Roger always wrote the music first, 
So I'm sure that he played me. And it was a commercial that showed a young young couple getting married, driving off. They kiss. They drive off in the sunset. And there is no way in the world this you know this song was going to be probably recorded, and it certainly wasn't going to be a hit. The number one album at the time was in Agada de Vida. I, mean, I don't know how much further you get away from, from what is commercially happening, you know. Uh, but so I write, we've only just begun to live white lace and a kiss for life and sing it. And and as you tell it, you know, Richard Carpenter, who, uh, you know, when the Carpenter signed it at, at A&M, nobody knew who we were. I mean, it's like we'd been everything Roger and I were writing it had you know was getting recorded. It was B sides and it was album cuts. We had never really heard our songs on the radio. Maybe a little middle middle of the road station once in a while. Hear Steve Lawrence singing "Drift Away" or something, but nobody knew us. Uh, the head of publishing at A and M showed up at the door to our offices and said, uh, "Want to introduce you to these guys who are going to be recording for A and M? Karen, Richard, this is Paul and Roger, and and they knew." Everything, you know. I mean, we, we had an album cut, you know, you know, by the by the crawling spiders or whatever. <laughs> they, they would go. Oh, I, I love that song on the on the crawl. I mean, there was no crawling spiders, but but literally, you know, just it was amazing to to meet somebody that knew what we had done, you know, and who you know the kind of stuff we did. So we had a great opportunity to write for them, and and we wrote. When he, when Roger called, or when, rather when Richard called, and we said yes, it was it was so amazing to to watch what that voice, Karen's voice, does to to any listener. The 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 the, the thing took off, and the next thing you know, it's, it's every high school is using it as their theme for for the yearbook, and and it was the beginning of a of a really remarkable collaboration. So grateful for that. There's there's an example of pure gratitude. Uh, you won the Oscar for collaborating with Barbara Streisand on Evergreen from A Star Is Born. A great song, obviously. Now, my favorite from the soundtrack is uh, With One More Look at You. And I understand that you, you based that on a line that James Mason said in the 1954 version of the movie. First of all, that's, when I met my wife, and to, and uh, to, in like 2001, whatever, she said, you know, uh, you you wrote my second favorite song, and I went, oh, real, oh, oh, second favorite song. Okay. <laughs> I, first thing I had to ask is, what what's your favorite song? And she said, uh, what are you doing the rest of your life, Marilyn and Alan Bergman? And, and you just go, oh my God, of course. <laughs> what's the second? She said, with one more look at you. Uh, it's my favorite song from the movie. I mean, I wrote most of the songs in the movie with Kenny Asher, and yeah, we the first thing we did is we sat down and watched the, the you know the it was a, we had offices out at Warner Brothers for, you know and uh, for you know or, or Barbara did rather, and uh, the first thing they did is arrange for us to see uh, the earlier versions of What Price Hollywood, Stars Born with Judy Garland, whatever, and, and James Mason. And there was just a, this wonderful thing where James Mason would, would say, you know, like, hold on, I, I just want to take another look at you, you know, and she would stop and flutter her eyes and all. And we loved that. So there was a song that that at the end of the movie, when when he's passed away, when he's had his car wreck, he's dead, John Norman is gone. She finds this 
song that he was working on. And that's the first thing that she actually called me when when she asked me to work on the picture. She said, I want that song. And I want something like You and Me Against the World. I said, well, I wrote that with Kenny Asher. Let me bring it. And incidentally, I immediately walked into that first meeting with all the songs, you know, notated where the songs would go and, and what what they and what the two bands would be like and all. And, and Barbara was and John Peters were like, that's not what we were asking. We asked you about one <laughs> song. But the, she said, you're not intimidated. I said, no. I, I was totally intimidated. But I said, <laughs> no, you know, this is a wonderful story and I'd love to do it. Uh but yeah, it was just. I actually had dinner with James Mason after the picture came. Oh wow! And, um, and James and his wife, and and I said, you know, James, there's a line that you know. I, I don't know if you've seen a Star Is Born yet, but there's a, a line. There's a song in the picture that was inspired by a line of yours from the earlier from your version of a Star Is Born. He said, Oh really? I said, Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's called "With One More Look at You," and I sang a little of it to him. And it's, you know, it's you know, it's totally based on, on your. Thing. You have this thing where you say, "I just want another look at you," and he says, "Oh, I, I don't remember. It's been such a long time since I've seen you know, it." And his wife said, "Oh, both. You were watching it on about three in the morning to last week." And <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, but yeah, it's just one of those one of those moments where you're sitting there with with somebody that you have just worship for all these years you know and and uh again back to that word gratitude yeah paul we're closing in on 30 minutes but uh, as you mind going a few extra minutes because i'm having so much fun here yeah no i'm good based on on the on the quality of this conversation uh you know there's no time limit right now all right fantastic i i have to ask about the rainbow connection why why do you think that song has resonated with so many people what is it that, that gives that song so much power I think it begins with Jim Hansen. I think it begins with you know the the music before bef- the music before the 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 music when you know when you you're standing there and you're talking to somebody that you loved you know I, on the road my band and my my road band and I would uh, would wake up in some little town somewhere in America in mid America and open one eye because I was usually you know pro- probably hungover. <laughs> Open one eye and watching Sesame Street, and we loved you know, Bert and Ernie and Animal and all these characters. So I was a huge fan when I met Jim in uh, in, in in England. I went over to do the Muppet Show, and and guess, and he asked me to do a thing called Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas, and uh, which was a, a wonderful little one-hour special. I, I think that was kind of my audition, which is yeah. great, by the way. I love that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the labor of love, and and the easiest writing I ever did in my life has has got to be for the Muppets. It just pours out of me. There's something about that that relationship that just opens up my heart, and and we met. We're a good match. Uh, but I I know that that uh, Jim was. You know, he said, "Look, I think I was being auditioned for the Muppet movie to write the songs for the Muppet movie," and. Which I always thought Joe Raposo would do because he was so so wonderful with the Muppets and wrote "It's Not Easy Being Green" and also, but Jim asked me and and I said, "Can I bring in Kenny Asher?" We had just finished working on "A Star Is Born" and and we, it was just a, a really g- great collaborative experience and I wanted the the level of, of sophistication in the music that that I knew Kenny would bring in because I write words and he writes music and all, but. 
the process again it, it's sometimes the 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 what you wind up writing is an, is an absolute accident and the, and the classic example is is rainbow connection so we're you know we know it's basically a road picture it's how the, how the muppets get together and and blah 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 and the road to where they're looking for frogs to become rich and famous so Jim says we start. We start the movie. We're going to start the movie with we find Kermit, and uh, he's in, in the, the swamp and uh, sitting on a lily pad. It turned out to be a log because it was easier to hide Jim in a log <laughs> than than a lily pad. But I said, okay, what's he doing? He said he he thought a minute and he went he's playing the banjo. You know, I said, okay, so he's playing the banjo. Uh, this is the opening song. This is the I Am song for Kermit the Frog, who is to me a monstrous star and as real as you are. And so it's like, what became the what the perfect song that was was something to kind of reach for? We always thought was one who when you wish upon a star. You know, when Jiminy Cricket takes off his hat, looks at the sky and sings, when you wish upon a star, something happens to you. It's spectacular. And we wanted that for for Kermit. So we thought about the fact that it, he has water, he has air, he has refracted light, he has rainbows. So we started writing. And it, look what we did to ourselves. Here's the opening. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions. Rainbows have nothing to hide. Oh, my God. Oh, look what we just did. We totally wrote ourselves into a corner. Like, we just we just dismissed anything magical about rainbows. And then look what happens. So we've been told, and some choose to believe it. I know they're wrong. Wait and see. Someday we'll find it. What happens in that moment is absolutely what is at the heart of, of Kermit's character. Kermit at that moment becomes a member of the audience looking for, you know, the rainbow connection because he says, so we've been told and some choose to believe it. Now he is sitting with the audience as a believer when, the, right. when he's surrounded by non-believers. It, t- it makes the song, uh, it, 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 make, it, it, it opens the song up to a way to, to offer ideas that are his whimsy that have a deep, I think a deeper spiritual meaning than, then I, I mean I don't know if Kenny and I put it in there or somebody else is kicking us around, but but my favorite line in the song is who said that every wish would be heard and answered if wished on a morning star? Somebody thought of that. Someone believed it. Look what it's done so far. That's flat out my philosophy. I believe that thoughts become things. I believe that you know that when we are coming from a loving place, we are powerful, and uh, and it just it's it's again keyword gratitude that that the mistake that we made at the beginning you know was uh, the opportunity to respond to that took us to a place where the song had a deeper meaning i think the the connectedness of the song to the world today and i, I saw you know the young man uh you know sang it on the voice and won uh the next week this last thing of the voice to have to have all the people that have, you know, I mean, I've recorded it with with Willie and Willie Nelson and I singing that song mm. as good as life ever gets <laughs> for a songwriter. Uh, I think that that if you really check the headwaters of why the song works, you got to look at Jim Henson. You have to look at his energy. You have to look at the just the, the wisdom and the kindness that is there in the characters that he created that that led us through this process. All right now, my 
favorite, I think my favorite Paul Williams song, it's hard to pick, but it's one that you you did yourself uh, and, and was a hit for you. And some of my favorite lyrics of all time, like an old familiar poem that still won't rhyme. I could get back to the place, but not the time. Love that song so much. Waking up alone. Oh. Wow. Oh, you, you are totally, uh, that, that so touches me because it's, it's a song, it's, if I ever try to talk about songwriting to other songwriters and, and, and express, you know, elements of a song and what they do, uh, if you listen to the, to, to if, you know, and I'm, I'm stunned, Richard, I totally didn't expect that. But that bridge is, is, it's, is, is the best illustration I've ever written of, of what a bridge is supposed to do. Take the story to a different place. Uh, Oh, waking up alone. I took my chances on a one-way ticket home, growing tired of strangers and the kind of life I'd known. Bought the time for settling down to come at last. Yes, I hope to find a future in my past. Take the story to the next step. Walk with me, darling, where the wheat fields used to be. I will tell you stories of my times across the sea. You're the legendary girl I left behind. Can't begin to count the times you crossed my mind. Most important story point coming up. Oh, yes. And, oh, your children, why the youngest looks just like you. Oh, no, damn it. <laughs> and then you, you break this. my heart with she's yeah, the picture of her mother. Oh, God, you're killing me. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's yeah, he got there too late. And again, it's just, uh, and I don't know where they come from or why, or why but, but when I, I wrote that alone and... Uh, it's one of my favorite songs ever, and you just and, and no people and nobody knows about that song, Rich. You know we have to get a little place together. You're going to remember <laughs> the song. You know it's like well, funny. that's a great album. I, I love that entire album. The old fashioned love song, yeah. Michael James Jackson produced that, and uh, Michael James Jackson's whole thing was to not hide me behind it. He said, let's get your frail little. He didn't say it then. But I look back and I let's get that frail little voice of yours out front so people can hear what you're feeling. And uh, he left it very bare and, and with the best musicians in the world, Lee Sklar on bass, you know, from James, James oh, yeah. basically James Taylor's backup band, you know, the, the section, you know, with uh, Craig Durge on, on keyboard. It just, what a, what a, what a gifted life I've had. Now you said you were a failed actor, but uh, you were everywhere uh, in in the 1970s in film. Smokey and the Bandit, uh, Phantom of the Paradise. How how much yeah. fun was that for you to have a chance to to be in in, in some movies that, that people just loved? You know what is it's it's been remarkable. First of all, the only time I ever felt like I was absolutely living my childhood dreams is when I walk on a movie set. I just spent two seasons on Goliath with Billy Bob Thornton. Which is a great series, by the way. We've had a number of guests. Our friend uh, Mark Duplass was on there, and that's such a good series. Yeah. Uh, Oh, my God. Well, And Billy Bob is like, I mean, talk about a master. And, and again, you know, what does he have in common with Jim Hansen? There is this kind of quiet and welcoming energy, uh, you know, about this really kind, really person amazing person who and and working with him on the set incidentally i mean first of all you say what you what you you know you, you pay attention to the to the lines and and then when you shoot it you just you know whatever comes out of you is 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 what you're feeling and they get so much permission from from uh, billy bob to to you know but he speaks so softly 
And it's like you're in the room. Then you watch him on television, or when you know when, when you're when you're seeing the work, it's just he he is letting you in 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 the most amazing way that is all internal. And a lot of times, I, I mean, I I couldn't hear him. He'd say things that that I'm, I'm watching the show. There was there was one episode where I walk in, and he's in in bed where he's got the breathing machine on and i've i've just broken into his room with you know and i smack his legs and wake him up i said i gotta cut your throat for god's sake that you know that the lock on that door would, wouldn't couldn't keep uh, a, a monkey with a credit card could get through that and he said one just did you know <laughs> <laughs> but he said it so softly i didn't respond at all and and just keep plugging away and then i look at it on, on you know on hb or on uh on Amazon, and it's like I hear the line, and it kills me. It's like he's so creative. Uh, <clears throat> the first big movie I did was called The Loved One. I remember walking on the set, seeing there's John Gielgud, there's Jonathan Winters, who I worship, you know, we stayed friends with for years. Uh, it's just, it's the most magical experience in the world for me to walk on uh, on those, and, and where you go to that, that other place that, that, you inhabit a character, and you, and you, you have, you follow a storyline that is just. I mean, it's just talk about your childhood dreams coming true. That's it. I mean, I love walking into a, into a recording studio with a big orchestra. I still the best part of doing what I do for a living is I don't have to give up my fan card. So when I walk into a when I walk into a, a, a room and I see Quincy Jones, who I've known since the seventies. I still go, wow, that's Quincy Jones. Wow. There's a part of me that was, that would walk on the set and be sitting there talking to Billy Bob and I have loved him, you know, forever. Uh, and I still go, man, you are sitting here about to step in front of the camera with the master, with Billy Bob, you know, so I love it. I just love it. Was I it on the set on. of the chase that you actually started writing songs for the first time? Sitting there watching Marlon Brando and Robert Redford in the scene at a junkyard where Robert Redford, as an escaped convict, is 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 hiding in the junkyard, which is set fire by the four teenagers. That I was one of the four teenagers. I was sharing a dressing room with a kid named Mark Seaton who had a beautiful guitar, and I most of the time, like for about three months, we're shooting at night, and we're kind of wait. I had I think three lines in the movie, you know, but but. So we're, we're a lot of time just sitting there watching. And I, when I picked up his guitar, I went, don't pick that up. That's a Martin. So I went out and I bought a little guitar. And I had no idea how to, I didn't know an A chord was an A chord. I know that when I put my fingers certain places, I, it, it sounded good. So I'm like trying to teach myself to play guitar. And I'm sitting on the steps of our little motorhome that, that, uh, that, that Mark and I had shared. And I'm watching the scene, and I just, uh, to myself, I go, Bubba, 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 come out wherever you are, or we're going to come in and get you. And we're just sitting, making it up on the spot as Robert Duvall is walking by, and my life is about to change. Because Robert Duvall stopped, and he says, what's that? I said, it's the guitar. Isn't it cool? He said, no, not the guitar. What were you just singing? And I, and I thought, I was in, I'm, I'm in trouble now. You know? And I just... I just made it up. I was like, he said, come with me. And when I went, oh, Jesus, now what? <laughs> so he walks me over to Arthur Penn, who is the director, you know, just coming off of, of the miracle worker. I mean, he's brilliant. And uh, I'm totally intimidated again uh, and not acting. 
but he said, show him. I said, it's the guitar. And not the guitar, show him the song. So I sang, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And he didn't say anything, but he went, okay, hold on a second. Bring the Kodak around and uh, light all the fires. Paul, stand up by the, uh, by the, you know what, bring the car around. Let's have put the kids in the car. Uh, Paul, by the, the, the barbed wire. Hold on. Okay, roll it. Do it. And I sing the song, and it's in the movie. And it's like, I, I was two years later that I became a songwriter. But it's as if the universe had just given me a <laughs> billboard of direction that said, you know what? You made it up. Somebody else liked it, and it, they they preserved it for all time and put it in this multimillion-dollar monstrous film and everything. Maybe you might think about writing songs. It took me two years <laughs> to, to do it. But, uh, I mean, the only thing that, that matches that is when I was about 15 years old, I climbed onto a boat in here in Long in actually in Long Beach. I live in Huntington Beach. But with some of my buddies, we stole boat off, uh, stole booze <laughs> off the back of the boats, and then I tried to swim back across this little body of water with a bottle, a bottle of booze in each hand, and I almost drowned. And when I was nearly sober, I told that to a woman who had a lot of time, and she said, "Ah, a billboard." I said, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> she said, "Well, the universe was showing you that alcohol was going to drown you." Wow. <laughs> but you didn't notice then. I said, well, that's amazing. So now I look at my life and I find the billboards that went about about uh, about about alcohol and addiction. A little later on, I get a billboard about the fact that, that what you're supposed to be doing is writing songs. And um, and and the great thing is that as as we roll along through this and everything I have now, a solid expectation for for more opportunities, and uh, when the river meets the sea at the end of my life and everything, I will look back and go, "You, I'm going to hate to say goodbye to this life because because it was just it was. I mean, it's been great fun being Paul Williams, and uh, I was given so much more than I deserved, and I love every minute of it." I have to ask you, because it was such a great movie, one of the best movies in terms of its use of music, I think, in recent years. It was so great to see you as the butcher in Baby Driver. <laughs> wow, yeah. Edgar Wright. Oh, I love Edgar Wright. You know, and Edgar did, uh, as a kid, he did Bugsy Malone. You know, and, That's right. And, uh, yeah, he, you know, so he was one of the kids in Bugsy Malone at, at school or whatever. He uh, was a big fan of, of Phantom of the Paradise. And he's just been so wonderfully supportive, a really good friend. And he said, one of these days, I'm going to find something fun for you to do. And, uh, you know, I mean, every, every, all of his pictures are just fantastic. If you haven't seen Shaun of the Dead, you know, you've got to see Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> you know, it's, from, from the very beginning, he's so unique. And the way he uses music, and it's interesting you point that out, because it's, I think, the most unique thing about the, uh, about the picture is uh, is the way he uses music in, in, in the film and all. It's a great fun ride. And, uh, you know, he asked me to, to do The Butcher with dialogue that you couldn't really do like what I do on on, on uh, uh, any of the stuff that I'm doing with, you know, with with Goliath, with, with anybody where you're you're getting the heart of, of the dialogue and you, and you kind of process it and say it in your own way. This is something. This was like a two-page scene of dialogue that is all about comparing, uh, you know, pig parts. You know, uh, <laughs> that's why they call him the butcher. You know, to to various weapons. You know, 
and and it was the most difficult dialogue I ever had to learn in my life. And also, it was like, now I want to do one sometimes. I want the chance to to work with him again and all. But I would like something where I can kind of I can kind of soak it up and and let it kind of sweat out in its own way, as opposed to following those that that roadmap was difficult. It was tough, but he's fantastic and a good friend. Uh, you've also been doing great work for more than a decade now as uh, president of ASCAP, defending uh, the rights of, of songwriters at a time when, I don't know, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that, that your best work is being stolen by these streaming services with songwriters getting virtually nothing in return. Well, you know, the the thing is much better than it was, and, and uh, but you're right, it's been in the last, since 2009, I've, it's been a great honor of my life to, you know, to be trusted to this position and and uh, to make sure that songwriters are are you know are compensated in a in a something close to a fair fashion, you know. And it's getting better. It's getting better. And we've had had cooperation. You know, the great thing about about the legislators in the House and in the Senate is that they have uh, they love music. And it's one of the few things that they can actually come together and not try to rip each other's throats <laughs> out, you know, over, over, uh, you know, should we do something here? Uh, you know, we went through the whole thing with, you know, with Napster, where, you know, where where music was being grabbed and, and there was nothing. And then in streaming, we, you know, we're, you know we, we've been bound by a consent decree, you know, that kind of has us going in, into uh, uh, economic battles with one hand tied behind our back. We had a, a very, very big break and, and worked, worked hard for uh, to create uh, the Music Modernization Act, which right. created an MLC, uh, which is uh, uh, the, the Music Licensing Committee. Is essentially, what it does, the MLC, is it, 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 uh, it creates an it creates a, a, a uh, uh, the 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 fee for for the mechanical right in, is being dealt with in a way that that properly can take the time to identify who you know who the 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 creators are who the publishers and writers are uh, the 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 guessing game of of uh, who to pay for this music uh, is is being solved as long as you as long as you make sure that they have your information uh, you know the, all of the all of the information on on who owns the copyright who wrote it who publishes it you know that you can now instead of a black box collecting money that they don't know who to send to the 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 money will wind up where it belongs and the numbers are coming up you know that it's it's that's that's you know i described beth matthews who is the brilliant ceo of ascap as the engine uh, we have a, an amazing board of directors of, you know, of 12 publishers and 12 composers and songwriters. Uh, I'm the hood ornament. I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I, I will walk into an office and, and say, I'm Paul Williams. I'm an American songwriter. And I need to talk to you. And somebody like a, a congressman from Georgia will say, and you're Lillian is smoking the bandit. God damn, I love that movie. <laughs> well, let's talk. What can I do for you? And you know what? It's, that's, that's what I do. That's the gift that I'm able to bring to it, and and make them aware, you know, and and, and bring guys like Jimmy Webb in, into the the office with me and say, "This is Jimmy Webb." He's and they go, "I know who Jimmy Webb is," and what a treat to meet you guys. And what can I do for you? And what they've been willing to do in, in recent years is is really lean into our, our uh, you know, the, to to kind of kind of 
you know, cut some some uh, some ropes to to give us a little more freedom, uh, a little little understanding, and we're uh, in the years ahead. I think going to see it get better and better and better. We have eight hundred, almost eight hundred thousand members of of ASCAP, and uh, thanks to the the brilliance of, of of Beth Matthews and the cooperation of an amazing staff and a board of directors. Songwriters, you know, for the last three years have been over a billion dollars. So it was, you know, we're we're a not-for-profit organization, so every penny after the operating cost goes to the writers and publishers. Uh, I'm really, really proud of what we're able to do, and and I want to do it for a couple more terms, and and uh, as long as they want me, I'll say yes. Paul, it has been an absolute delight to talk with you. I have uh, been a fan for a long, long time, but I especially uh, I appreciate the way you live your life and you you walk the walk out there. Well, it's wonderful that, and I and uh, I'm I'm hearing some information from you that tells me that that uh, we have a future together. That sounds great, Paul. Thank you so much for being with us today. My treat. Thanks so much, Rich. Well, that was a whole lot of fun. A great conversation with Paul Williams, and uh, you know, every once in a while you get somebody you just you just connect with, and uh, that was that was pretty fun stuff there with Paul, who acknowledged it himself along the way, and. Uh, well, we, we, I don't know how many times you and I have said this. When we talk to, we get the chance to talk with people whose work we've admired for a long time, and then they turned out turn out to be even better people than they are performers and artists. What what a great feeling that is! It's absolutely a wonderful feeling, and as we've had with so many songwriters, and it's because they are telling stories with their songs. I would assume. They have such great stories to tell as well. I mean, there was three or four different stories in that conversation that I could pick out as my favorite. I mean, the James the, Mason story uh, was the, great. Yes, <laughs> uh, the story of 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 the very first movie he was in and and recorded the song for it, and you know how that led him to become. Oh well, maybe I should write songs. Yeah, being pushed by Robert Duvall to do that. Yeah, and and he's also I mean, he's worked with everybody along the way as, as both a songwriter uh, and an actor. Uh, the, and we didn't even get around to the story of how how it worked with Barbara Streisand. She had written the melody for Evergreen on the guitar and reached out to him and said, I, I need lyrics. And he came in not just with uh, the lyrics to that, but he had, he had I, I don't know if he had seen maybe a rough cut of the movie without music, but he came in with a whole bunch of songs that helped tell the story of the film. Mm. And, and that's how we ended up uh, really doing the entire soundtrack for that. Uh, a whole lot of fun. The great Paul Williams with us here on Downtown the Podcast. Our thanks to you for joining us this week. Hey, if you like the show, please give us a good review. Subscribe, tell your friends, and hopefully you'll join us next time right here on Downtown the Podcast.